This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. Hello, I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. And an eye for an eye, that is the reason that Americans cited most often in a credible poll for their support of the death penalty. And it seems that six out of ten of us do support the death penalty. Although when an eye for an eye was quoted in the New Testament, the teaching was that sometimes retribution is not really all that it seems to be cracked up to be. And that's a point that 18 states seem to have agreed with by abolishing the death penalty and the District of Columbia. Another 15 have suspended it, and that leaves 17 states. And the question is, should they follow suit? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Abolish the death penalty. We have four superbly qualified debaters on stage who will be arguing two against two, for and against this motion, abolish the death penalty. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York City votes to pick the winner, and only one side wins. The motion again, abolish the death penalty. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion, the team that wants to abolish. Please welcome Diane Rust-Tierney. Diane, you are the executive director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. You have spent many years uh, fighting the death penalty uh, back when you were working for the ALCLU, back to the 90s. And as we pointed out, a majority of Americans still do support the death penalty, but the trend is definitely downward. So what has changed over time? Well, I'd like to think I've gotten better at my job and have uh, done a better job of getting the public to focus on the right questions. And we'll be going to some of those questions tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome again Diane Rust-Tierney. And Diane, tell us who your partner is. My debate partner is the wonderful and absolutely brilliant Barry Sheck. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry Sheck. Uh, Barry, you are a professor at the Cardozo School of Law, co-director of the Innocence Project, well-known to television viewers by playing yourself on The Good Wife. Um, you, f- you founded uh, the Innocence Project back in 1992. Um, how many post-conviction DNA uh, exonerations have there been since the project began? There are 362 post-conviction DNA exonerations, 19 of people off death row, Uh, many, many people that were convicted of murder in non-capital eligible states. All right, and I'm assuming we're going to be hearing more about that in your argument. Let's again welcome the team arguing for the motion, abolish the death penalty. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion. Again, to be clear, they are against abolishing the death penalty, so you figured out the double negative there. It's pretty clear. First, let's please welcome Robert Blecker. 
Robert, uh, you're a professor at New York Law School. You spent 12 years talking to prisoners inside Lorton Center, a central prison, another decade visiting death row prisoners. You put all of this together in a book called The Death of Punishment. Uh, and in it, you show that uh, although you are a leading advocate of the death penalty, you have a surprising amount of empathy for some of the prisoners you met. I'm wondering, does that, did that experience in any way soften your commitment to the death penalty? Well, um, first of all, I spend a lot more time watching and listening than talking. But uh, Daryl Holton, who murdered his four children, taught me a lot and made me laugh. And I do confess sometimes to missing him. But for the worst of the worst of the worst, not at all. All right. And who is your partner? My partner is the incredibly erudite and always sober uh, (laughs) Ken Scheidegger. Please welcome Ken Scheidegger. Ken, since 1986, you've been legal director of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. In this field, uh, you are a leading voice. You are probably the leading public advocate in support of the death penalty. We know that because your writings show up constantly in Supreme Court references. You're quoted constantly in the newspaper. Uh, In a recent profile, you said that you served in the Air Force and that your passion for military service and your support for the death penalty both come from the same core beliefs. What are those core beliefs? Well, that basic belief is that in a civilized society, the most important function of government is to protect people from violent assault, and that is true whether the source of the threat be foreign or domestic. Okay, thank you. Ken Schadiger, and again, this is the team arguing against the motion abolish the death penalty. So on to round one. Our motion is this, abolish the death penalty. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. And here to speak first in support of the motion, abolish the death penalty, Barry Sheck. He is co-founder and co-director of the Innocence Project and professor at the Cardozo School of Law. Reasonable people can disagree about whether capital punishment is a morally appropriate sanction for the most heinous of crimes. And our opponents uh, place tremendous value on retribution by execution. They think that is an incredible benefit. But I think when you reason about this as a public policy issue, and that's why we're here, and you look at the costs and benefits of having a death penalty versus life without parole in a maximum security prison, you're going to reach the same conclusion that six states have reached in the last six years. The death penalty doesn't work. It should be repealed and abolished. What are the costs? The death penalty creates an undeniable and unacceptable risk of executing innocence. The death penalty does not deter. The National Academy of Sciences recently reviewed all the studies and found no evidence of a deterrent effect. And common sense tells you that, because the states that execute the most, like Texas and Virginia, do not have lower homicide rates, do not have lower crime rates than the states that don't have a death penalty. The death penalty is administered arbitrarily. It depends on the quality of your representation. And who has money and your race often determines what kind of representation you get. The death penalty also depends on where you're tried. Uh, It's incredibly arbitrary in this sense. It's only 2% of counties in the United States that are responsible for 56% of the death sentences and 52% of executions. Now, there should not be any disagreement about one moral and one factual question, and that is the unacceptable risk of executing innocent people. 
a young man in uh, New Orleans, uh, Mr. Stewart, Kia Stewart, was exonerated with the help of the prosecutors and the Innocence Project in New Orleans. He was tried for murder in New Orleans, represented by law students at Tulane Law School and a supervisor that had no experience in murder cases. This kind of stuff goes on all across the country, and we've got to face up to it. What is the error rate of convicting people that are innocent? Sam Gross at the University of Michigan Law School uh, submitted uh, a paper in the National Academy of Science Proceedings and showed that when you look at capital convictions, you can demonstrate on innocence grounds a 4.1% error rate. Now, that is unbelievable. You cannot anymore kid yourself on the fact that innocents have been executed due to junk forensic science, prosecutorial misconduct, law enforcement misconduct, ineffective lawyers. Mark Early, the Attorney General of Virginia, who presided and brought about 36 executions, has just come to the position as he left office that the death penalty is based on a false utopian premise. That false premise is that we have had and do have and will have 100% accuracy in death penalty convictions and executions. Who should live and who should die? I can no longer support the imposition of a penalty so final in nature, um, yet so fraught with failures. So I leave this to you. Our friend George Will has said that conservatives, capital punishment is a government program, so skepticism is in order. Thank you, Barry Sheck. And our motion is abolish the death penalty. And here to make his argument against the motion, please welcome to the lectern Ken Scheidegger. He is the legal director of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Scheidegger. Thank you. Uh, why do we have the death penalty? There are three reasons. The first reason is that for some crimes, such as the marathon bombing, any lesser penalty is simply a travesty of justice. The second reason is incapacitation. An executed killer never kills again. We cannot say that for certain with a killer sentenced to life without parole. Life without parole is not a zero-risk option. If we choose life in prison for killers, we do risk killing innocent people. Then there is deterrence. It is a basic principle of human behavior that incentives matter that if you raise the cost of doing anything, fewer people will choose to do that thing. Logically, then, you would think that an effective enforced death penalty would save innocent lives through deterrence. And we should demand very convincing evidence by anyone who claims to the contrary. There are a number of empirical studies showing a deterrent effect, estimating between 5 and 18 innocent lives saved per execution. These studies have their critics, to be sure. The authors have responded to the critics and shown that the results still hold, even considering the criticism. The bottom line is we should not get rid of a penalty that is independently justified by justice if doing so risks taking innocent lives through lost deterrence. The arguments against the death penalty are like a game of whack-a-mole. Every time we refute one of the arguments, they just come up with another one. The old claim from the old days was that the death penalty was discriminatorily enforced against African-American defendants, that claim was uniformly refuted by study after study, including the defendant's own. Then they came to a backup claim that the death penalty was discriminatorily not imposed on murderers who kill black victims. That The evidence there is more mixed. Then they fall back to the claim of excessive cost versus life without parole. The problem there is that the studies claiming that are seriously flawed. They typically include unnecessary costs as costs of the death penalty. In California, the 
study that was cited to claim the excessive cost of the death penalty counted as the number one cost of the death penalty, the cost of keeping a person on death row for 26 years of appeals. Well, three-fourths of that cost is unnecessary. In a capital case where there is no doubt who did it, which is most capital cases, you can get it done in six years, which Virginia did with the D.C. sniper. There are a handful of cases, though, of people who were really innocent and who were really sentenced to death. But ask yourself, where would those people be if they had been sentenced to life without parole instead? In most cases, they would still be in prison, and they would never get out because an inmate who is sentenced to death gets a government-paid lawyer for the second review of his case and the third review of his case, and that is where this evidence often comes out. Someone sentenced to life in prison, he may have longer time to prove innocence, but he doesn't have the resources. And so in most cases, nobody's going to care about his case. So the death penalty is an important part of our system. It's important for justice. Reforms are needed to make the process focus more on actual guilt and innocence. So let's mend it, not end it. And I ask you to vote no on this motion. Thank you. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing for and against this motion, abolish the death penalty. You have heard from the first two debaters and now on to the third. Let's please welcome to the lectern Diane Rust-Tierney. She is the executive director of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. The death penalty should be abolished because it fails to enhance public safety. We all want a criminal justice system that is effective and secure, one that creates more safety and less violence. But that is not what the death penalty is doing. In states where the death penalty is used, as you've already heard, we have a higher homicide rate. In the South, for example, which has the highest number of executions, there's the highest homicide rate. In the Northeast, by contrast, which has the lowest execution rate, we have a lower murder rate. These differences tell us that we have to take a closer look at what works and what doesn't and take a common-sense approach to public safety. Everyone wants a neighborhood that's safe and communities that are strong. And in order to do that, we have to focus on the root causes of crime. We know why crime and violence happens when other things are neglected mental health services, safe and affordable housing, schools that prepare us for our future jobs, and jobs that pay living wages. When the nation's police chiefs were surveyed about what they thought our priorities should be when it comes to enhancing public safety, the death penalty ranked last consistently. What do police chiefs think should be our focus and attention? It should be on more resources for law enforcement, particularly training drug treatment, and again, a stronger economy with better jobs. More evidence that the death penalty is disconnected from a true public safety objective is the fact that it's used so rarely. In 2014, we only had 72 new death sentences in the entire country. In 2013, we had 39 uh, executions. In 2014, we had 35. 80% of the executions in 2014 took place in Texas, Missouri, and Florida. And even in those states that use the death penalty frequently, 
the death penalty is really relegated to pockets within those states. Abstract justifications for the death penalty have little meaning in a context where it's used so rarely and unpredictably. The death penalty does, however, reinforce our nation's sad and ugly history of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and racial inequality. A substantial body of research spanning 40 years remarkably consistently shows that race, particularly race of the victim, is the single most reliable predictor of whether you're going to get a death sentence. The death penalty is rarely used when the victim is a person of color, particularly African-American men, even though African-American men are most likely to be the victims of homicide. We're also seeing in recent studies that the most likely person to receive a death sentence is an African-American person who is convicted of killing a white victim. We have a system that treats some lives as worth more than others, and we have current information about how, as a society, we are two sets of people living in the same space with very different experiences with our interactions with law enforcement. Under those circumstances, we cannot have a system that decides who lives and who dies. The death penalty is an outdated practice that is hindering our nation's forward progress. Therefore, I urge you to vote for the motion to abolish the death penalty. Thank you, Diane Ross Tierney. That is the motion, abolish the death penalty. And now our final debater to speak against this motion is Robert Blecker. He is professor at New York Law School and author of The Death of Punishment, Searching for Justice Among the Worst of the Worst. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Blecker. So let the punishment fit the crime. We've mouthed that for centuries. But do we believe it? Do we practice it? No, not at all. We mock it in the very administration of our criminal justice system. Because the grand irony is, however counterintuitive this is, that inside prison, it's nobody's job to punish. Life begins when the sentence of life begins. From the corrections point of view, it's all a clean slate and it's nobody's job to punish. Look at the mission statements of the Departments of Corrections. They guide corrections. You will not find the word punishment in any mission statement in any part, in any Department of Corrections in the United States or its synonyms. Not one. So it's no surprise that given the fact that no part of their mission is to punish, that they run their prisons in such a way that life becomes relatively pleasant. Now, what am I talking about? For one thing, you may not be sentenced to life without parole and end up in a maximum security prison. You're going to start out there, but you may not end up there. In many states that I have visited, a perfectly well-behaved killer, the most vicious of killers who prey on the vulnerable, will be perfectly compliant once they're arrested. So they will be pussycats, and they will be there for a long time. So they will be reliable, and therefore they will be given the best lifestyles, the best hustles inside the prison. The reality of life without parole, given the way the prison is administered, given the television sets, given the first-run movies in many cases, given recreation, given the hours and hours outside of the cell daily, the closest we come to serious punishment left in this society is the death penalty. So when you consider the motion, don't consider it in isolation. Consider the actual alternative in practice. And yet I would argue for the death penalty separately from that. Some people deserve to die. And we have the obligation to execute them. Now, who are they? And can we determine them adequately in advance? Yes, we can. We can do it through definition, and we can do it through enumeration. And so I would reserve the death penalty for, essentially, terrorists, 
mass murderers, murderers of vulnerable victims, especially children, rapist murderers, contract killers, torture killers. And so we can, not precisely and fully define it in advance, but we can get to the core. Joshua Komosarjevsky broke into the Pettit House, took Michaela and Haley, tied them to their beds in their upstairs bedroom for six hours, took Michaela, repeatedly sexually abused her, took cell phone photos of her and sent them to the friends, and then in order to eliminate the evidence before he left, took gasoline and doused her on and around her and her sister and burnt them to death alive. He deserves to die. Danny Rowling, the ninja killer, broke into houses, tortured, mutilated, murdered. He deserved to die. Lawrence Brewer took an innocent black guy walking down the street and for sport, this white supremacist, dragged him to his death in unspeakable torture. We can enumerate them in advance. Not only who should we kill, how should we kill, not by lethal injection, a terrible method. And not because it might cause pain, but because it certainly causes confusion. It confuses punishment with medicine. It's all part of the deeper issue. And so ultimately, we get to the question of why. Why should we punish? Not for the sake of deterrence. That would be using a person as a means to our own ends. That would be sending a message by killing a person. That's immoral. Not for incapacitation. I disagree with Kent. We have the obligation to build escape-proof prisons and safe prisons. We should kill for one reason and one reason only. They deserve it in three words, in one word, justice. Thank you, Robert Blecker. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is abolish the death penalty. Now we move on to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is abolish the death penalty. In round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in New York. The motion, again, is abolish the death penalty. The team arguing for the motion to abolish Barry Sheck and Diane Rust-Tierney, we heard them argue that uh, the death penalty represents a, a broken policy that fails to protect public safety, that undermines the fair administration of justice. Too many examples of uh, racial bias in its uh, in execution of the policy. It's too arbitrary. They argue also that there is an alternative punishment, which would be life without parole. The team arguing against the motion, Ken Scheidegger and Robert Blecker, argue that the system is not perfect, but it's not very broken. Some people deserve to die, they say. They disagree with one another on whether deterrence is the issue or not, but they make the argument that the, the data on deterrence is murky, as well as the data on racial bias and life without parole is described as not very punishing. I want to go to the team that's arguing to abolish, to abolish the death penalty and point out that to some degree what your opponents are saying is that the, the policy is not perfect but could be perfected. And given that hypothetical, if the problems that you specified with the death penalty were fixed, would that change your position on the justice of the death penalty? Diane Rustierney. I'll go first. I mean, I think that the, the real question is whether it can be fixed. I mean, we've been at this for over 40 years. The court has looked at this, uh, and what we've seen is as the justices have looked at this case, one by one they're coming to say, you know, this isn't going to work. Uh, so the question really is, do we continue to do this? Well, the, and uh, you're, you're missing a point here. Uh, 
when you ask a, a loaded question like that, if it could be perfected. Well, no, it's your opponent's argument is that... Oh, the, my proponent's argument is that it should be effective, swift, and sure, right? Right, and, and your argument was, here's what's wrong with it, this is wrong with it, this was wrong with it. So I think it's quite logical to say, if those wrongs could be addressed, what about, what, what does that leave for you? I, I, it's an impossible hypothetical. Uh, I'm a law professor. I hate to fight the hypothetical, but... Uh, but what, okay, so uh, why what, is it I mean, impossible? You know, if you're making a public policy argument and you're living in a fairyland uh, where you actually believe that you're going to eliminate the risk of executing innocent people, which you didn't mention, John, as a major cost of the death penalty, which we now know is much greater than we ever did before, not just because of DNA testing, but in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences has just indicated in a groundbreaking report that fingerprints, ballistics, bite mark evidence, pattern evidence, all kinds of other evidence that we used to rely on and think we're so sure are in doubt, and we're now trying to get all these resources together to do basic uh, and applied research and make it reliable. Let me, let me bring then to Robert Blecker, your opponent's point now, that, that in fact it could not be fixed in, on this particular point, that we could never get to 100% certainty that an innocent person would never be executed. Do you think that's true? And if so, does that concern you seriously? Well, of course I'm concerned about executing an innocent person, any of you, every retributivist would find that the ultimate horror, and I just want to express my respect for what Barry Sheck does with the Innocence Project. That is fundamentally a retributive um, program. We don't want the innocent being executed. You say 100% certainty. I'm not 100% certain that the ceiling won't fall, collapse, and kill us. Neither are we all, but we're very brave to sit here. The fact is we trust our lives constantly. We trust our lives for a tiny risk of death, and for the sake, when I walk my beloved grandchildren and do it down Broadway where a truck might jump the curb and kill them for the sake of convenience. Surely if I'm willing to take an infinitesimal risk of those I love for the sake of convenience, I'm willing to, say, to take that same kind of risk for those I detest for the sake of something much more sacred, which is justice. Let me bring, it to, let me bring Diane I was going to say, you know, we're talking as if we're, the only thing out there is the death penalty. The vast majority of homicides do not result in a death sentence. The vast majority of cases that are resolved have justice because People are serving long prison sentences, including life without parole. So the idea that unless we have the death penalty, we cannot have justice is just a false premise. Let's dig down into some of the points that were made earlier. Ken Chattagher, your opponents are saying that the deterrence argument is um, pretty, pretty solid, they say, that the science more or less shows that deterrence doesn't work. They cite examples of states that have high murder rates and high and the death penalty, uh, Texas, for example, as an example. Very compelling argument. What's your response to it? Well, actually, it's not a very compelling argument to disagree with. Oh, well, it was, uh, I, I, I bought it. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it. It's pretty elementary social science that that kind of one-item comparison between two different groups is not valid. Uh, Texas is different from Vermont in a lot of ways besides the death penalty. And you're comparing apples and oranges to just take that one item, compare two groups, and assume that 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 difference is what caused the difference in the murder rates. Uh, That's the basic problem of correlation and causation. But our our point is we need more more evidence than that, and the burden is on you to show that this is useful. There is no affirmative strong argument or evidence to suggest that the death penalty is a deterrent, and you've admitted that. You've said it's, it's equivocal, but we should keep going forward, and that's really the public policy question. Diane, I want to take to you a, a point that I, I believe I understood Ken to make, which was that, the, that your side, the abolitionist side, 
moves arguments when the data fails your first arguments. And the example he gave was on the race question where he said, if I have this right, Kent, that at one time the argument was that most of the convicts facing uh, on death row were disproportionately African-American, but that the argument, that you've moved the argument to most of the victims are white, and that that's a, that that's a little bit of a dance. So I'd like you to, to respond both to his point that you're moving the goalpost, and just to go to the, the point itself. I wish I had the power to move goalposts the way Kent was talking about it. We don't do that. The case has always been that the death penalty actually tracks our history of racial apartheid when it comes to criminal justice, that the death penalty uh, when we had slave codes actually was meted out based on the race of the victim and the race of the defendant. And even though the slave codes and we've made some progress, the process, the system still works the same way. The core issue is that the death penalty values some lives more than others. There was a recent study that just came out that looked at death sentences from 1976 to 2013, and what that, that study found was two things. First, that the, the least likely, as I said earlier, the least likely victim for, which, for whom the death penalty will be sought will be an African-American man, even though African-American men are the most likely uh, to be victims of homicide. And they also found that the defendant, a defendant who was convicted and sentenced to death for murdering a white victim who was African-American is far more likely. One other point. Every study, there's been over 200 studies over 40 years. Every study has found that prosecutors seek the death penalty for crimes against white victims more frequently than okay, other so victims. Okay, so I want to let, bring this to Kent. Okay. Kent well, first of all, I'm very glad to hear that we are agreed that seeking the death penalty constitutes honoring the life of the victim. I appreciate that you're not saying that. that point. Uh, <laughs> on, on the studies, uh, the pattern of offending across racial groups is not uniform. That's a demographic reality. If you take these studies and if they are litigated, if they are reanalyzed, if you have competing experts looking at the same data, what you find over and over again is that when additional factors, legitimate factors, explaining the differences between cases are taken fully into account, that these racial differences vanish down into the statistical grass where we can say that it's hardly even uh, apparent that there's any effect there. Let's go to some questions. Right there. Uh, thank you to all the panelists. Uh, my name is Evan Katz from Manhattan. I've always been against a death penalty for the reasons we've discussed. Uh, and I've got a question for all the panelists, but especially those against the motion. It seems that most of the rest of the world is going against the death penalty, especially developed nations. And if you look at who's for it and who's against it abroad, the U.S. is much more aligned, vastly more aligned with the countries that have abolished the death penalty. Could the panelists discuss what's going on abroad and especially the panel against the motion, please? Uh, only to the degree that this can be relevant to whether we should abolish here, and I'm not sure that it is. Does anybody feel that what's happening abroad is relevant to what we do here? Do you? Yeah. Diane, why don't you take it? Well, I would I'll say, you. you know, most of our allies who are committed to the advancement of human rights and civil rights really are looking to the United States to abolish the death penalty uh, because we do have a reputation for leading in these areas. And so I think that we could actually make a larger contribution to the broader struggle that many in other countries that you mentioned 
are, are, are fighting. You know, we have a trial. There, 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 there are people who are sentenced to death without the kind of trial and protections that we have. There are people who are sentenced to death who don't know when they're going to be executed. Those kinds of situations can't really be addressed as long as the United States can be pointed to as still having it. So there's a very important benefit for us to abolish death because we can advance human rights in other places where we could all agree that human rights need to be advanced. We can't um, take that. My short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> I think the United States uh, can and should um, decide this issue for itself. I think it's entitled to decide this issue for itself. Uh, as far as examples to other countries, I think we can serve as an example to those countries that don't want to abolish the death penalty, that yes, you can have the death penalty consistently with human rights. We can do that. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, abolish the death penalty. Another question? Thank you. Hi, I'm D.C., um, if you, uh, this is for the um, against side. If you are sort of talk so strongly about justice and deterrence, would you then be willing for deterrence and justice to have other ways rather than the death penalty, such as caning or cutting off the hand that you know may work um, as deterrent and maybe even some countries as justice? Thank you. So that's the that's, uh, question is put to the side that's arguing against the motion. I just want to be clear. That means they are arguing against abolition of the death penalty. Uh, would you like to take the question, uh, Robert? Uh, sure. Robert Blacker. Uh, first of all, an eye for an eye is a measure. It is not, it's, it's not a justification. As was pointed out classically, if, you, if a one-eyed person takes out one of two good eyes of a, of a victim, he's left him sighted. If you take out his eye, you've blinded him. So we've, we've, um, we've traded uh, the notion of proportional punishment. Now, to directly answer your question, what would I have? No, not, not physical mutilation um, by any means, but I would have something that I call permanent punitive segregation, which means life should be unpleasant. The food that they eat every day, I'm talking about the worst of the worst of the worst who are never getting out, they should eat only loaf, which is a tasteless but nutritionally complete patty gives you absolutely no satisfaction. I saw Komisar Jevsky uh, Hayes, his cohort, on death row with his Hershey bar. He'll wake up, watch a ball game, and, 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 and eat a Hershey bar. That's wrong. Um, beyond, there should be no such thing as play. Play? Exercise? Yes. Play for the worst of the worst of the worst? Absolutely not. Are you talking about a life with, without parole scenario or a death row scenario? I'm talking about both. If life without parole is a fundamentally retributive punishment. When we commit someone to life without parole, we're saying... Well, your opponents are, are arguing for life without parole as the alternative to the death penalty. Yeah, but they're saying, they're saying live in the real world, and then they're ignoring what the real world is for the lifers who serve life without parole. Marischek. No, I mean, Bob, people Very should know your real position, just in case people missed it. You are objecting uh, to the way that lethal injection is done because you don't want people anesthetized. You want people to see that there is suffering at the time of the execution. You that's a mischaracterization. That's you favor firing squads, right? I do. Right. So let's just look at, I mean, your argument is a retributive argument. You're not arguing deterrence. You're not arguing uh, uh, 
that there isn't a, a high risk of executing innocents. You have a, a, a position which I understand, but I actually uh, don't think that that is a, a generally shared view. Ma'am, right down here. Um, okay, so this is for, I guess, all the panelists. I, 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 if you can just sort of throw it out there. I don't, we don't, wouldn't have time for everybody to answer. Sure. Okay. Um, just so a quick question. You sure. mentioned that if for someone who's on death row, they have to go through the appeals process and they get multiple you know, government-issued attorneys. Do you think people for the motion, if that actually someone you know, of color or an African-American, if they had a, a poor attorney given to them from for life on parole, and then they get to go through this process, do you think it would be more helpful for getting truly innocent people off? Diane Rustini. I think one of the sad things about the death penalty is because the punishment is so severe that the limited resources, as much as Barry is able to do with the Hennessy's projects across the country, has to focus on you know, those people as a priority who are uh, sentenced to death. I think if there were no death penalty, there would be many more resources and much more opportunity to look for and address the the question of innocence of people who are serving other sentences. You know, keep in mind, there's one underlying theme. We make mistakes, and we're being told that, you know, well, some mistakes are tolerable. But I think your point is the fact that we have to focus on the death penalty means we cannot focus the resources that we need to address the problem of a system that makes mistakes, and, and let's, let's be clear about what those costs are. When Maryland studied the death penalty before they abolished it, they were able to determine that a capital case was seven times more expensive than a non-capital case. Uh, the executions in Maryland averaged $37 million per execution. It's $23 million in Florida. It's $185 million in California. And, you know, California's system is completely crazy. There's 734 people on the row hundreds that don't have lawyers who uh, have been sentenced to death, um, and we can't fund it. I mean, why would you put all this money um, into propping up a system where they have no persuasive evidence of deterrence, right, Uh, that when we need all this money uh, to finance an underfunded criminal justice system that has so much to be fixed, particularly when it comes to forensic science. All right, let me, Barry, let me let the other side respond because the the question was to all sides, if you'd like to, Kent. Well, yeah, the the California one is the one I'm most familiar with, and uh, the study uh, counted in as costs of the death penalty a great many things that are not costs of the death penalty. They're costs of the obstruction of the death penalty. The length of time spent on death row was cited as the number one cost. We spend a lot of money in California going over and over and over the same case, and we have been to the legislature and proposed reforms to fix that. Uh, they have been killed in the legislature, but we do have an initiative process in California, and I believe it will be fixed, and it will be both a better system and a cheaper system, and ultimately the death penalty does not need to cost more than life without parole. And let's go back to some audience questions. Sir, right in the middle here. Um, I just wanted a clarification from uh, Robert. On It's related to the media, and our notion of prison is not the research notion that you have, and I think perhaps you might have taken for granted that it is a cushy type of waiting period. Uh, please clarify that. And also... Uh, wait, I, wait, I'm not following your question. Oh, the, the life in prison aspect, you seem to... I feel it wasn't a punishment aspect. That's right. And to address the nature of just simply... N- the freedom itself being taken away, I felt like that was somewhat dismissive. Okay. Yeah. And your point is that the media makes it seem like it's not so nice. Yes, I'm exactly. Actually, I actually, I actually well. am a little bit between the two of you because, Kent, you got up there and said that 
if you are convicted of uh, life without parole, your odds of getting a lawyer and getting legal representation are a lot less than if you are sentenced to die, which makes it sound like it's not so great to have uh, life without parole. And Robert is portraying it as a sort of... Well, we're talking know, about a, different a, aspects okay, of Okay, all right. So, Robert, yeah. why don't you take the question then? Yeah, we are, we are talking about if, if you're innocent, you're better off uh, getting the death penalty in terms of your odds of it being proven. You're being proven innocent. This is the consistency. In terms of... I'm not taking anything for granted. I've got it on videotape. I was given privileged access. I have tens and tens and tens of hours of lifers playing softball, of uh, first-run movies, uh, of, of group rec, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that the prison system is being run indiscriminately. It is not on the basis of the nature of the crime you committed. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how you behave when you're inside. Of course, the loss of liberty. I don't want to spend my life in prison. I'm not saying that that's not punishment. I'm saying that's not punishment enough for the worst of the worst of the worst. And it's often much too much punishment for people who've committed relatively trivial crimes and are put into the same prisons with the same experience. Diane Rust Tierney. My first observation is that... My first observation is that the death penalty has to stand and fall on its own accord. Uh, The conversation that Robert is having about punishment, whether it's enough and whether it's a whole different conversation. We're here to talk about whether this policy actually advances public safety, and it doesn't. I'd like to just do what the questioner said is very important because something that should be corrected. I understand, Bob, that in your view, uh, life in maximum security prisons uh, is not harsh enough. But I can tell you uh, from all the clients I've represented, all these exonerees that I've talked with about what uh, their prison experiences are like, and some knowledge of maximum security prisons and familiarity with the literature, it's a terrible place to be. You wake up every morning, you have no idea who's going to kill you uh, and when. Uh, You walk into the lunchroom, you look at somebody wrong, you can get stabbed. Uh, I mean, there are gangs in prison. Uh, There's horrible violence in prison. Uh, You know, they should be safe. And that is why the correction people, Bob, tell you that they're interested in keeping it safe. And that is their job. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is abolish the death penalty. On to round three. Our motion is this, abolish the death penalty. Round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. Here to summarize his position supporting the motion to abolish the death penalty, Barry Sheck, co-founder and co-director of the Innocence Project. Uh, let's not be abstract. Suja Graham, Brian Halsey, please stand. I want you to see these two people. This is not the cost of doing business. This is not collateral damage. Suja Graham was sentenced to death uh, uh, in California for murder in prison. He was exonerated in 1981. He has been out since then. He is uh, vice chair of the group Witness for Innocence. Byron Halsey, my dear friend, was convicted of murder, a crime that in New Jersey, I think, our opponents would immediately say, this should have been a death penalty crime. Two children uh, of Byron's girlfriend were found murdered in a basement, one with a nail in her head, uh, one sexually assaulted. He was tried and convicted He was miraculously saved from the death penalty by one juror who was probably motivated uh, by a conscientious objection to the death penalty. But DNA evidence after 22 years in prison 
demonstrated that Byron was innocent and identified the person who really committed the crime. So don't tell me that there isn't an unacceptable risk of, of executing the innocent. It's been demonstrated. The innocence movement has demonstrated it. It's not just the D 326 DNA exonerations that they can't refute. It's not just the f over 1,500 exonerations from the registry, of it, including non-DNA cases. We now know that our system is riddled with error. And that is what we have to come to terms with in this country. You can't start saying, we can fix it, we can make it perfect, when nobody's willing to put up the money, and it's an impossible task to begin with. Capital punishment is a government program. Skepticism is in order. Conservatives, George Will said that. Thank you, Barry Sheck. Our motion is abolish the death penalty. And here to make... His closing statement against the motion, Kent Scheidegger. He is legal director of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. Among my clients and among my comrades in this struggle are parents whose sons and daughters have been murdered. There's Phyllis Loya, whose son was a veteran and a police officer murdered in the line of duty just a few months before his own son was born, a boy now growing up without a father. There's Mark Kloss, whose 11-year-old daughter was kidnapped out of her own bedroom by a habitual criminal and murdered. There's Sandy Friend, whose 10-year-old son, Michael, was abducted, raped, and tortured for 10 hours before he was murdered. There is no doubt of guilt in any of these cases. These parents have waited too long for justice already. And I ask you, do not slam the door of justice in their face. Vote no on this motion. Thank you, Ken Scheidegger. And the motion is abolish the death penalty. And here to summarize her position uh, uh, in favor of the motion, Diane Russ Tierney. She is executive director of the National Coalition to abolish the death penalty. You must vote in favor of the motion to abolish the death penalty because it is inconsistent with the fundamental reality and core value of our society. All human beings are capable of change. That capacity to change is a fundamental value underlying our criminal justice system, which is designed not just to punish, but to rehabilitate. And the death penalty cuts that opportunity off. The choice is simple. Do we continue down a path that has continued consistently to produce results? Do we continue with an institution that harms and traumatizes people, prison workers, defense counsel, prosecutors, judges, the condemned and families of the condemned, jurors, and survivors of homicide. Regardless of whether a victim supports or opposes the death penalty, if you listen carefully to their voices, one message comes through. It hurts. The death penalty process, by its very nature, hurts. It is the nature of the beast. Therefore, it must be abolished. Thank you, Diane Ross Tierney. And that is the motion, abolish the death penalty. And here to make his closing argument against the motion, Robert Blecker. He is a professor at New York Law School. Moral facts exist. The past counts. It counts independently of the future benefits that derive from our actions. We make a covenant between the living, the dead, and the unborn. And so you can't use a cost-benefit calculus, not appropriately, not if you're seeking justice. Punishment must be limited, and it must be proportionate. 
It must be deserved. We can define them in advance. We can enumerate the worst of the worst of the worst. Life without parole, as presently experienced and administered, is the only alternative, and it's a bad one. There is no adequate substitute for the worst of the worst of the worst but death. The question's been phrased, as has been pointed out, so that it's a double negative on our part. So when you vote in the negative, you are really voting to uphold something. You're upholding the, the victim. You're upholding a sense of justice. You're ultimately upholding human dignity. We've seen some victims of the process stand up. I have no doubt that they are innocent. But you can't see the victims stand up who have been tortured, mutilated, raped, and murdered. We, as a society, have to be a voice for those victims, for the worst of the worst of the worst, and give them the only punishment that they deserve, which is death. Thank you, Robert Blecker. And that concludes closing statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is abolish the death penalty. I would just like to say uh, that uh, this was a very, very hard-fought debate, and in fact, the morality and the policy issues were uh, impossible to disentangle from one another, and I think that's to the benefit of the conversation that we saw here, but it was also greatly supported by the fact that all four of these debaters came to each other with a position of respect and dignity. They heard each other, even to robustly disagree with each other, but that's the essence of what a debate is. So our congratulations to the way all of you did this. All right, let's get to the final results now. It's all in. The motion, uh, it's abolish the death penalty. And as I said at the beginning, that's our motion. And the team whose numbers changed the most between the first and the second vote will be declared our winner. So here's the results from the first vote. 49% agreed with the motion to abolish the death penalty. 17% were against. 34% were undecided. That's the first vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 54%. That means they gained five percentage points, which is the number to beat. The team against the motion... The first vote was 17%. The second vote was 40%. That is an increase of 23%. That is what it takes to win the debate. Our congratulations to that side. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with visionary support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Arthur N. Roop Foundation, 
the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and the Paul E. Singer Foundation. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.